Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we're joined by a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, my colleagues Nate Lackman and Maureen Stewart are joined by Mark Josephs, Deputy General Counsel of LifeMD, to discuss the current regulatory and legal environment for telemedicine companies regarding online subscription services and the recent investigations by the federal government of these services. Take it away, Nate. Thank you, Judy. Welcome to our podcast from Healthcare Law Today. My name is Nate Lachtman. I am a partner with the law firm of Foley and Lardner and chair of our national telemedicine and digital health industry team. I'm joined today with two uh, distinguished attorneys, Mark Joseph and Maureen Stewart. They're going to join us today to talk about some of the current regulatory and legal environment for telemedicine and in particular uh, online subscription services and some of the OIG, DOJ, and FTC uh, investigations and review that have uh, begun to commence. Let's uh, hear who our guests are and with a little bit of introduction, starting with uh, Mark. Hi, I'm, I'm Mark Josephs. I'm currently Deputy General Counsel of LifeMD, a growing telemedicine company. Among other things, prior to joining LifeMD, I spent uh, 10 years at the Justice Department where I prosecuted healthcare fraud and consumer fraud on behalf of the Federal Trade Commission, the Food and Drug Administration. And while I was there, I received the Attorney General's uh, Exceptional Performance Award, which is the DOJ's highest honor. It's nice to have you, Mark. And uh, Maureen, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Thanks, Nate. I'm Maureen Stewart. I'm a senior counsel in Foley and Lardner's Tampa office. I spent about six years before moving to Tampa in DC as a litigator, and I, I spend my time litigating complex cases as well as um, handling internal and regulatory investigations for companies with a government focus. So when things start to fall apart, people give you a call, right? That's exactly right. And that is what we're going to talk about a little bit today, is uh, what happens when the threads start to unravel. It's very, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's one thing to give uh, proactive compliance-oriented advice. Do this, don't do that, right? But the reality is there are business decisions and to remain competitive in the marketplace, there are patient-consumer expectations, and there's the push and pull of uh, risk assessment versus all the legal compliance aspects. And so I think it is not inevitable, but it is likely that a company operating in this space, which is very cutting edge DTC, online only telemedicine services will at some point land under the microscope of a regulator, right? Whether it's through a subpoena or just a, an inquiry or a complaint. And so I think it, you would be well suited and advised to anticipate how to respond to that and uh, attended to that would be how to reduce the risk of noncompliance. Um, with that in mind, let's start uh, with you, Mark. How would you describe the current regulatory and legal environment for telemedicine companies? Well, first, telemedicine really advanced during the COVID pandemic and where a lot of people found it very useful and a way to stay well by using telemedicine. But more recently, both the Department of Justice and the Office of Inspector General at HHS have engaged in enforcement activities 
in this area. And uh, DOJ has had a number of takedowns involving many, many telemedicine operators. And the OIG recently issued a fraud alert about telemedicine, really addressing the same sort of schemes that the Department of Justice was prosecuting involving kickbacks to practitioners who never saw patients or only over the phone. And then durable medical equipment or genetic testing was ordered uh, for these people when they didn't need it. And it eventually got back to uh, reimbursing fraudsters from government healthcare programs and violating the, among other things, the anti-kickback statute. But in, in other ways, it's tough to tell exactly what the regulatory and environment is and what makes this an interesting area to practice in is, is it's very new and there's going to be some sort of risk in, in everything we do because the standards aren't set out in this area uh, in stone yet. And uh, so unless we're talking about sort of off the reservation fraud, like the OIG address or like the Department of Justice prosecuted, those companies that are trying to do the right thing uh, don't always have signposts in the regulatory area about how they can comply. So there's always going to be a little bit of risk involved. And it'll be interesting in the, in the future how aggressive the government gets to becomes to uh, regulating these companies. Yes, I, I definitely echo what Mark says and and to not repeat everything. I, I would describe it really as evolving and, and heightened, right? Evolving because while telemedicine has been around for, for about a decade now in the last, you know, since COVID is really when there was the absolute rapid rise to both the number of companies and also the access to telemedicine. And obviously with a rapid change comes an evolving regulatory and legal landscape. And so what, what we saw, I think there was a recent review, I can't remember who, who put it out, but 22 states changed their laws or policies in response to the pandemic to increase coverage for telemedicine. So with that type of you know, rapid change, as you said, Mark, it's, it's hard for, for companies to completely understand what, what the guideposts are, what the signs are, and what they need to anticipate in terms of the regulatory environment. And, you know, what we're, where we're sitting in three years out, out of COVID or the initial, not that we're out of COVID, but the initial impact of COVID is really when that regulatory tail is going to kick in, right? It's when the scrutiny is going to kick in. Now we have these new regulations They've been in practice for some time, and that's when the intense focus is going to start. And I think you see that, as Mark pointed out, with the fraud alert. So companies really should, I think, anticipate in this space a lot more regulatory focus over the next couple of years. I agree with that, Maureen. And that's going to be both on a federal and state level. I mean, this industry is regulated both by the federal government and individual states. And as you said, a lot of state laws have been changing over the last couple of years. And one, one thing I'm looking out for is how many states sort of draw back on telemedicine now that the COVID crisis is mostly over. Yeah, it's interesting how you, you both mentioned the pace of change. You know, we had the, all these rule waivers across the board. And in that period of volatility and change, there opportunities arise, but as well as uh, complexities and challenges. Why don't we unpack one of them? Uh, and this is a 
something that we've seen everywhere permeate e-commerce as the new business model, a subscription service, right? If you're a venture-backed company, you know that is MRR, uh, monthly recurring revenue. And if you're a consumer, you're like, oh, it's a subscription fee. Sounded fun at first, but now with everybody offering them, let's uh, unpack it, how it relates to telemedicine. So we have a lot of these direct-to-consumer DTC telemedicine companies with these subscription-based services. I'll start with you for this, Mark. Tell me, uh, you used to work there. So what, what's the FTC's perspective on subscription services? And um, why is it important to healthcare and telemedicine companies in particular to be aware of those rules and concerns? Well, the FTC, I can, I can say that their perspective on subscription services is very negative. And unless that's changed since I was in the government, the FTC brought actions and referred actions to the Justice Department. I even had a large criminal trial involving a subscription program that made it impossible for consumers to cancel and their credit cards kept getting charged even if they didn't want them to be. So the FTC is very concerned about this area and sees a lot of potential for injury to consumers in the subscription area. Now, as far as how it's useful in telemedicine is that companies prescribe products or sell them and they want, these are prescription products and they would like the patient to keep taking them. So that's set up as a subscription service and the patient can always cancel that, but the subscription service is set up for this prescription drug to keep coming to the patient, assuming that the patient still needs it. So in that sense, it's very useful in, in the telemedicine area. And frankly, it becomes a driver of revenue. And when you get subscription patients, they're getting charged monthly, and that's a good driver of revenue. But it really is sort of the nature of healthcare that if we are selling these healthcare products, the patients need them and they will continue to need them. So it sets up well for subscription services. Nate, I I think that this is another area where you see kind of innovation coming out of COVID-19, right? So not just in prescription, as as Mark was talking about, but also subscriptions to, there's now all these new mental health apps and other types of direct-to-consumer subscription services that are coming in, applications, other types of subscriptions. And, you know, I echo what Mark has said on that FTC does not like subscription-based services, especially when consumers feel trapped. So you're adding one thing that has always had heightened scrutiny to another area, which is healthcare that most people feel and understand. They don't want any sort of bad practices or fraud to be involved. So when you combine those things I think it's going to very much put the FCC, put those type of healthcare apps under a microscope with the FTC. So they put out a statement late last year, I think it was in October, outlining what they want to see, what the FTC expects from subscription services. And they they were very clear. They want upfront non-deceptive practices. They want companies to disclose the relevant information. They want to make sure that the consumer has given their express and informed consent. And then of course, making cancellations easy. I think that those components, even healthcare apps are going to be held to an even stricter, more scrutinized standard than let's say you had a monthly subscription to a magazine or 
a co- I have, I have one to a, a wonderful coffee bean delivery service. I absolutely love it. But if I can't cancel that, it has a lot less of an impact on me than a, a healthcare app or a prescription-based service through a telemedicine company. So I think this is an area that while it's great for innovation and great to offer these new services to consumers and patients, it's an area that companies need to be very careful about how they set up their subscriptions and you know whether they feel fair and easy to access and also easy to cancel and that no one feels trapped. And if, if you feel trapped or feel like you can't get out of these subscriptions, then the FTC has made it very clear that they're ramping up enforcement around that area. Mark, do you have any like little takeaways on the functionality of how easy it is to cancel that uh, listeners may want to think about? Yeah, I think that uh, it's trite, but I, I like to think of it as, is this a fair way to do things? And is it easy enough to cancel where a consumer is not getting in this endless loop of transfers and upsells and, and never seem to get the cancellation done within a reasonable period of time? And I mean, some states require cancellation, can be done by email. Others do not have that requirement. States are moving that way. A couple states like Virginia and Illinois recently changed their laws to require that companies allow cancellation online through the same method that they originally ordered the product. So that makes things easier um, as long as those cancellation requests are honored. But I really look at things as in the cancellation area as is this fair is this easy enough for a consumer to do that doesn't have an hour to spend getting transferred around and getting hit with upsells could you explain your cancellation process with the same confidence and straight face you explain your subscription onboarding process right (laughs) i'd like to think we have that but uh, my company now but it's interesting because i we do look at our competitors and some Competitors do not have an easy way to cancel and do not have good disclosures about the subscription program. I'm interested to see whether the FTC gets wind of that and eventually moves against some of these companies or at least launches investigations of them. Let me ask a follow-up too for both Murray and Mark. Do you think that for the majority of these companies, which are, you know, typically early stage high growth, do you think this is deliberate and intentional in their design, or is it maybe an oversight? right? They, they just got a lot on their plate and they're trying to figure it out. I think on the whole, it, it, it's an oversight. It's a new product offering. It's the lack of making sure you're collaborating with different partners in understanding all the different regulatory aspects that touch on you. And so they may just be following what someone has done prior in, in that specific aspect of the subscription of how you cancel. Well, this is how I've seen it done before without really understanding the environment right now and understanding all the different components that they should in terms of making it easy, doing a check, then checking it after they offer it. You put out a new product, you put out a new offering where you often see companies fail is the follow-up. Is it working as we anticipated? And oftentimes we don't see that follow-up and that's where we see companies kind of have that failure. And so of course there are some bad apples out there. But I think on the whole, companies are trying to do the right thing. And these are often oversights. And with a new product, that happens. I'll shift gears a little bit more into the uh, 
the criminal space with DOJ and OIG on this special fraud alert. So the OIG recently issued a special fraud alert on arrangements with telemedicine companies. It came out uh, July 20th of 22, and they articulated seven different elements uh, that are not conclusive, but uh, are suspect risk factors to be aware of. What message do you think OIG and DOJ is sending to the marketplace? And uh, what should telemedicine companies or other just any tech-enabled healthcare service companies be thinking about in this alert? Well, I think with this alert you're seeing, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, so I don't want to belabor it too much, but you're seeing that trail, right? You have this explosion from COVID of new offerings, new coverage, companies trying to meet the needs of their consumers and their patients during COVID-19 and after. And now what we're seeing is the application of of sort of the old legal regime, right? If you look at the the fraud alert, it talks about anti-kickback. These are things that that have existed and and are laws that have been a regulatory focus of states and the OIG for, for years of normal healthcare. Now we're seeing the application to telehealth and with that, you have, I think, the company's failure to completely anticipate the application of, of those regulatory requirements, to new technology, new offering. And of course, you have the bad apples who are setting a standard where they are taking advantage, are engaging in fraud, which then puts immense and intense focus on this market. So I think that this shouldn't be unexpected, right? From given what happened with COVID, the rapid rise, the evolving legal landscape, and the ability to have people take advantage of that with the bad apples. I don't think that this is unexpected. And it is obviously an area that it's not a left or right issue. It's very much a it's healthcare. If there's fraud in healthcare, everyone gets on board with holding those people accountable. I agree with Maureen, what Maureen said. I, I think that the regulatory scrutiny from OAG and DOJ and the FTC are only going to increase in telemedicine as telemedicine gets bigger and bigger. As Usually when industries get bigger and bigger, there's more and more fraud in them. And from my perspective, from my time in the government, you know, when we saw a lot of money going into something or a lot of money being developed in a new industry, we thought okay, this is going to be an area we're really going to have to look at eventually, look at for fraud. And I think the OIG alert addressed these companies that are engaged in true fraud. I mean, they're they're engaging in clear violations of the anti-kickback statute. And I know that's something that in our company, we're always thinking about whether we're doing anything that could even come close to an anti-kickback violation. But one thing that Maureen said, and I agree with uh, attention of our vendors, we we heavily scrutinize our vendors because we know we can be held responsible for something that they do wrong. So when we're even reviewing the contracts with them or, or inquiring about their reputation or monitoring their activities, we really keep a close eye on that to make sure that they're not putting the company in a difficult position. Let's talk about that a little bit further. How does a company, how would you, each of you counsel companies to appropriately balance the regulatory compliance and legal complexities and demands, but while remaining competitive in the marketplace, uh, what are the levers to pull or the things to discuss with the C-suite execs in order to best understand that risk reward decision-making process? Why don't we start with uh, Maureen and then we'll go to Mark. 
I think one of the things that you can do is, is do a gut check, right? You can always have a gut check about who needs to be involved in the decisions, but as well, making sure that companies as they go forward, they have a plan in place to track compliance, right? I talked about this a little bit earlier that when you have a new offering, you think it will work out a certain way, but when you finally go to market or you offer it, you don't have an audit in place to ensure that it's actually working the way that you expected. So you make sure that you have that audit in place. You, there are other things that you can do in terms of having outsiders come in and test the product or test what the offering is afterwards to make sure it seems fair in, in terms of a subscription, for example. Does it seem easy to someone who, who hasn't been involved in the process to cancel, for example? So I think that you want to make sure that the right people are in the room and that people feel heard. Um, you don't want to tell a client that they shouldn't innovate, right? That would be a big mistake, but you want to make sure that they feel comfortable understanding what their risks are and ways that they can minimize them. And, and one of those is really one of the big ways is to have that kind of audit check afterwards, um, because that's when you can go back and make sure that you're following what, what you thought and how it worked. I agree with the audit check. I, that's something I personally do is go through our offerings and make sure that they're working the way they should and they're remaining relatively fair for the consumers. I think that executives tend to look at, uh, inevitably look at what the competitors are doing uh, in order to decide how much risk to take on and and feel like, well, as long as we're in the middle of that group and not at the bottom end, we're fine. But that's always always difficult to make that assessment. And given what we talked about at the beginning, where there aren't clear um, guidelines here in a lot of areas, sometimes it's even difficult to figure out how much risk you're actually taking on because you're not sure what the standards are. That is a, a decision-making process that requires a collaboration from everybody and not just including the marketing folks or the executives that needs to include the lawyers and the compliance people, because we need to come to consensus decisions on uh, how much risk, if we can determine what risk it is, how much risk we're willing to take on while still remaining 90% compliant as much as we can tell we're compliant. And, and sometimes in this area, we just don't know. I mean, we've We've looked at things and thought it went one way, and then we go to a third party and figure out it's it should be done slightly differently. But this is just such a new and growing area that sometimes it's just difficult to tell exactly how compliant you need to be and how much risk you're taking on. I just wanted to jump on something that Mark said. I, I think he made a really good point in that it's unlike something else that's been done. So you don't really know what compliance aspects there are, what... Um, you need to be looking out for. And so one thing that you can do is determine what is this most like that we've previously done and then identify the differences. And that can help the compliance and the legal folks say, okay, it's most like this. We analyze that in this way, but here are the differences and here then how we can kind of pull the levers and decide where the risk reward kind of evens out um, in terms of this new product offering or this new innovation, right? And, and that is, if you can identify something that it was most similar to, 
you really then can help start to identify the differences. And that's really where, you know, the rubber meets the road is, okay, how do those differences then play in the regulatory, the legal regime, those types of things. And that's what presents the potential risk. Gosh, it must've been 20 years ago when Donald Rumsfeld was discussing uh, known knowns and known unknowns. And he said, (laughs) there's things, you know, we don't know, but there are also things that we don't even know that we don't know them right? The unknown unknowns. And, and those tend to be the most difficult problems. And I, and I think definitely with early stage, high growth tech uh, enabled healthcare services companies, many of the founders are not from a healthcare background. Uh, they know e-commerce, they know product design, they know tech very well, but their core competency is not healthcare services. So there are a lot of issues and complexities that they don't even know they don't know. And uh, I think that's absolutely worth thinking about. What I do see a lot of, though, are uh, potential clients talking about, hey, we want to do a pilot program or we want to do a proof of concept, right? And then that the mechanics of that proof or pilot do, do not, clearly do not comply with the law. And so what I always say is like, it's not a proof of concept if you could not deploy it legally or in reality. Like we know that if you create a model what's rife with kickbacks and fee splitting, it will scale up very fast because uh, you're breaking the rules. What I think is a better approach is just do it right the first way and see how it works. It might work just fine. Don't take the shortcut in advance uh, under the expectation that if you follow the rules, it's just not going to grow fast enough or do it the right way. I I think that is a, a morally hazardous route to go. And what it can result in is a series of three, four, five, risk steps that when you zoom out, you realize, oh my gosh, cumulatively, I have taken several steps now outside my comfort zone without fully realizing it. And I, and I think that may be the dilemma that many of early stage entrepreneurs face in the health tech space. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also agree that the ones that are doing that are tending not to go to outside counsel and just trying to ramp up as, as fast as possible, not worrying too much about the rules and then finding themselves in a place where they don't want to be. Let's shift a little bit from philosophical approaches to uh, running a, a telemedicine company. What are some of the red flags that uh, if you're operating a DTC telemedicine company, what are some of the red flags to keep an eye out for? And, and um, what would you recommend along that sort of life cycle of uh, enforcement? Let's start with Mark. Well, the first thing I'd be looking out for is attention from the government, particularly the federal government. And, and that's a, a huge red flag. And that's something that immediately has to be dealt with in terms of trying to narrow the scope of what the federal government's looking at and whether they're starting an investigation or not. But one of the things that I look at a lot is the level of consumer complaints we're getting through Better Business Bureau. Some of them come through state AGs and if they're coming in one area, as a company, we really try to look at what we're doing in that area. And if there's something that is not fair, that's generating lots of legitimate complaints, we're gonna have to change that to make it more fair. But if you're not at the degree where you're getting uh, government investigation inquiries, I think the consumer complaint volume and the type of complaints really are red flags to where you, can nip something in the bud without the government having to get involved and address something that consumers are legitimately complaining about. And that really isn't fair. And and that's happened a a couple of times in my experience. And that's a good signal from the marketplace that you're doing something wrong. 
I think that's, again, exactly right. Usually if the government is knocking, it's because there's been a red flag prior, right? And so how can a company prepare, not prepare, but but anticipate or prevent the government coming to knock? And it's to identify those red flags as early as possible. And so what a company can do is really have not just a compliance program that's on paper, but a dynamic kind of compliance program, one that that provides a feedback loop. So what Mark was talking about is exactly what you would want to do. Look at consumer complaints to customer service. Are you seeing the same type of um, repetitive complaints, repeat complaints where consumers have the same problem? Um, You also want to make sure that you're monitoring those things. Oftentimes, they exist, but is there an actual monitor where you're getting meaningful reports and meaningful reports that are easy to digest? Compliance officers, the level of executives who would need to be involved to identify these red flags and then and then make the changes are very busy. So they need to be able to have meaningful feedback from the compliance program that's in place. So meaningful feedback on if there's an internal whistleblower channel or a complaint hotline. You can have a complaint hotline, but if it's not monitored and again, not going up to the right people in a way that's summarized to be able to meaningfully act, you might just end up with a bunch of internal complaints that when the government comes knocking, they say, well, why didn't you do anything with these? And then the other thing that companies have gotten a lot better about that I've seen is actually monitoring social media. You know, just from news reports, where direct to consumer type complaints go when when it's a direct to consumer product and consumers sometimes will just go on social media and tag the company or write posts. And, And if you track that and you're getting again, repetitive type of feedback, it shouldn't go unnoticed. It should be tracked and, and acted upon. I agree about social media and some, some of that feedback exists exclusively on social media. And that's something that's worth monitoring pretty much at all times to make sure that it's just functioning like consumer complaints coming into the company and looking at what people are raising on social media, as Maureen said, and know if it's a similar thing that, is appearing repeatedly, it's something that the company has to address. Uh, another rule of the internet is don't read the comment section. But I guess uh, here it's an exception to it, right? You want to read those comments. You want to read uh, Reddit, look for subreddits on it and um, see how people are reacting, expressing their frustration, uh, if any, um, or praise in a social media space. So you, you talked about the consumer or patient complaints. You talked about some of the internal complaints and social media. What's next? When do the stakes get higher? The stakes get higher when the government comes in. And that's when you really need to devise, start and conduct a, a good internal investigation and deal with the government in the most effective way possible. And a lot of times that's trying to narrow what they're looking at and and defining the scope and then deal with it that way. That's when the rubber meets the road in, in terms of, you know, you've got a problem here and the government is noticing it. And that's when things get pretty dicey. Yeah, Mark definitely said the magic words there of narrow and define the scope. Once the government comes knocking, it's it's important of determining, you know, which regulatory agency is, is knocking. And then that, that can help you help first identify the scope, but also then 
doing as much as you can to figure out what that scope is, define it, and then try to narrow it. Because as you'll see, and you'll see in you know some of the bad Apple type press releases, it, they went in with one thing, they found that one thing, but then they also found other things too, and the scope broadened. So even for companies that you know aren't the bad apples, but they had you know an issue that received a lot of complaints, they have an agency come in, you know, a CID. You want to narrow the scope in part because of costs alone, but also you want to narrow the scope because you don't want it to broaden and there can be referrals to other agencies. And so your goal at all times should be keenly focused on what the government has claimed or the regulatory body has claimed their scope is and to keep it narrow and as focused on that scope as possible and to reduce, reduce, reduce. That being said, it's important, as Mark outlined the internal investigation, not to completely put blinders on. Because the scope may be one thing, but you don't want to put blinders on as, as you're doing the internal investigation because you want to be aware of what the potential risks are out there if it were to get broader and advise on strategy related to that as well. Well, I, I think that my from my perspective in the government, I know that when a company receives notice of an investigation, there's been a whole lot of activity in the government before that notice goes out. And like, especially at an agency like the Federal Trade Commission that has lots of layers, this has bubbled up through the agency at different layers. And then the Federal Trade Commission itself, lots of times is required to sign off on sending out the uh, notice to a company that they're being investigated. So there's been already a lot of scrutiny done by the agency. And it's important to understand that when you're doing your internal investigation and you're responding to the government, you have to know that they already know a lot. And when that letter comes out to you. Let's say you're looking into, uh, you're working at a telemedicine company and they want to develop a new offering for their customers. From your perspective, the two of you, where you've seen things fall apart, what considerations would you recommend the, the operators keep in mind before launching a new line? I'd first take a look at what, if there are any major risks in developing the new product line, say major ones, say interfering with a provider's, a medical provider's independent decision-making, if trying to do something that might interfere with that, or you know, make sure that nothing looks like any of the well-established rules, that there's any risk there. And then just look into it from a compliance perspective and from what we know about how to stay compliant to make sure that it can be done in a way where uh, compliance can be maintained. But I'd look first at whether there are any major risks with clear signposts that, that have been around for a while, uh, such as anti-kickback or the independent medical decision-making to make sure that the new product line or new service is not going to interfere with that. To jump on to what Mark said about identifying kind of the rules, the regulations, the landscape involving compliance, make sure that you collaborate um, with compliance and legal, but also those who have kind of experience with the most similar offering in the company and, you know, the most recent new product offering of what obstacles they faced, what hurdles they had to manage, and then also make sure that you don't just rush or go to market without kind of having that plan in place as, as Mark and I talked about earlier to track compliance and ensure that what 
the offering ended up going and the new product ended up working as anticipated and having that feedback. And that should be done before launch, right? So at post-launch, you have those um, that feedback are already starting so you can react quickly to improve the new product. And that will let you maneuver faster. And hopefully, you know, a lot of what regulatory agencies look at is what were your intentions? Did you react when a problem arose and try to correct it? You know, there's a lot to say that acting in good faith and not always, I mean, the government can be very harsh, but acting in, in good faith and with good intentions and with good compliance gets you a long way in these types of cases where you can go in in good faith and say, no, 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 look at the steps we took in advance and the steps we took to correct. Those things are critical. I'd really like to thank you both uh, for joining us today, Mark Josephs and Maureen Stewart. Uh, I learned a lot. I know some of the listeners did as well. And uh, we'll have the transcript available online uh, for those who prefer to read it in that format. Thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to uh, seeing you at our next installment. Glad to do it, Nate. Happy to. Thank you so much. Now back to you, Judy. Thank you, Nate and Maureen. And a special thank you to Mark Josephs for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you.